Welcome to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. How do you engage children, include children, in music and in worship? How does music, particularly music literacy, uh, affect child development? What role does it play in child development? We're going to talk with a very uh, special guest today on this very topic. I want to say thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting Faith and Family. You can find out more about them on our website, kfuo.org. Look for the CUW logo. Joining us by phone today, Director of Parish Music at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. Her name is Emily Wook. Emily, welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you so much. Glad to have you as our guest today. Emily, tell us a little bit about yourself, how uh, how music played a role in your life as a, as a child, as a youth, as an adult. Sure. Uh, my parents actually are both church workers, and my dad is the director of music at the church that I grew up in. Um, so I have had music in my life all the time um, from the time I was very little. Um, my mom was the choir director. My dad was the organist, so they used to joke that when I was an uh, infant, they would stick me in the um, infant seat on the organ console because they were both occupied. Um, and then when I was a little older, I have many fond memories of worshiping on the organ bench alongside my dad. Um, so music was always in the house, mm-hmm. always a huge part of my life. Um, and then, yeah, I decided to make a uh, choice to go to Concordia and study music, and I've been teaching children ever since. What was the music of your childhood? Uh, what were some of the what are some of the musical pieces that stand out for you from your childhood, especially with uh, your your parents involved in in music in the church? Yeah, um, mostly hymns. Um, we would have family devotions every night, and music was often a part of that. Um, my siblings also took piano lessons, so. It, it was rarely quiet in my house. Somebody was always practicing something. Um, and then when practicing was finished, the radio would be turned on off into classical music um, or hymns and different choral CDs from the various concordias um, that my parents had collected over the years. <laughs> did you sing in choirs as well? Um, I did um, until my piano skills were such that they could have me accompany and then I spent a fair amount of time accompanying the children's choirs so that <laughs> whoever was directing at the time could, could direct rather than direct and play. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do both, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it can be done, though. How do you think, um, when did you start studying music as a musician? When did you start you know, really studying to uh, either to play an instrument or to sing? When did you really start learning um music, uh, how to read music, and, uh, and and all that comes with that? Uh-huh. Um, well, my mom gave me my very first piano lesson when I was in first grade. Um, I still remember it very distinctly, and it wasn't even really a planned um, time to start. It was pretty common. We had a piano in the house, so it was pretty common for me just to kind of be playing around with it, and then one day I was playing around, and she came over and said, how would you like to to really learn how to play, and that was sort of how it started. Um, and then I continued studying with my mother until high school, at which point she passed me off to another teacher. Um, interestingly enough, I, all of those years, always said music would always be my hobby, but I was never going to major in it, and I was never, ever <laughs> going to make it my job. Um, so that didn't quite work out for me, but I'm glad it didn't. Um, and then, yeah, it was... It was um, 
my high school choir director, um, I went to a Lutheran high school, and she had told me from about freshman year on that she couldn't imagine me doing anything else, and I fought her tooth and nail, and then (laughs) finally, uh, December of my senior year of high school, she said, well, just take an organ lesson and try it. Um, And at this point, I was already making um, applications to college as an early childhood major, um, and I decided, well... Oftentimes in Lutheran churches and schools, one has to wear many hats, so I suppose having some basic knowledge of the organ couldn't hurt. And so I (laughs) took a lesson, and then a month later had dropped piano lessons and switched my major, and that was that. (laughs) So what what is music literacy? Yeah. Music literacy is teaching children to actually be able to read music. Um, And so it's very different than just teaching them songs to sing in church or um, teaching them, you know, games and folk dances. All those things are important. um, But in my opinion, you really need to go beyond that and teach the children to be able to read the music. Um, I feel like my job as a teacher is to make myself obsolete. I don't want my students relying on me to teach them new songs or new hymns. I want to equip them with the necessary tools so that they can pick up a piece of music and know what those little dots all over the page mean, that they're not just there for decoration, but they have a purpose um, and in fact, then open the the world to to these children, um, so that they're not limited with mm-hmm. whatever pieces they happen to learn during their time with me in a classroom or in a choir. So, how have you gone about that, teaching music literacy to children? At what at what age do you begin teaching music literacy? What's the, your first step? Um, well, I, as part of my um, job, I actually teach a music readiness course um, for toddlers, infants, preschoolers with their parents. So my youngest student is, um, at the moment, just turned four months old. Um, And music, I always say, is like a language, right? When children enter kindergarten, they're often not reading, but they understand English. They can speak it. They can understand what you're telling them. And music is very much the same way. And so long before the child is old enough to be reading, I want them exposed to music so that they can learn the language of music. And so we play games and we um, put the beat on the child's body. Um, One of my favorite things to do is rolling a ball back and forth with a toddler. Um, They love doing it, but we roll it back and forth phrase by phrase. And if they don't roll the the ball back, I don't sing the next phrase. And so they very quickly learn that um, music is a language and it, it affects my response to them. And they learn where these cadences happen, and it's, it's very um, rewarding to see not only the children figure that out, but to see the parents discover that about their children and see what their children are capable of. Um, so from then from that, that early childhood uh, preschool, where do you go next? Um, yeah, so then in kindergarten, well, late preschool, early kindergarten, at that point I moved to um, having the child independently respond to the music, whether that's through movement or whether that's through vocal imitation or whether that's through short um, improvisatory responses. So I might sing to a child um, about 
what they had for breakfast and ask mm-hmm. them to sing back three things they ate for breakfast. And so it's just this idea of creating um, independent musicians. Mm-hmm. And so in my room, for example, by the end of kindergarten, all of the children in the room are very comfortable to sing solo, sing independent, which is critical to music development because I don't want them growing up to be that person who's always relying on the singer next to them. I want them to be able to hold their own musically and have the confidence to do so. And then from kindergarten, where do we go? Yeah, so that continues on um, in first grade a little bit, though it you know becomes a little more complex. And then in second grade is when we finally start seeing music in print. Um, so with the curriculum I use, um, it's a curriculum that's spiraled. So in second grade, I take all of those songs that they have been singing and playing games with and just learning, internalizing. Um, for the last couple years, and then I introduced the print. And um, so it's divided up by unit. so we start with quarter and eighth notes. Um, and it's, it's basically just attaching labels, and the children just discover and kind of notice, almost accidentally, though it's not accidentally, um, that, hey, these, these, these dots on the page, these rhythms, they, they match, they look like what we've been singing. And then you just build from there. Why is why do you think music literacy is important for children? Um, well, I think that again, I want them to have the the tools and the ability to continue to expand on their repertoire and to enjoy music for their life. I don't want music to just be something for kids. I don't want music. Um, to be limited to what I teach them. I want it to be something they continue on for the rest of their life. Um, And if you compare it to reading, um, again, because I think of music like a language, um, if if a child were to complete their education where the teacher taught everything by reading it to them, but never teaching the child to read, that would be a huge disservice to the child. And again, I think the same holds true for music. Certainly my job is to teach them pieces and to teach them games and to teach them to love music, but I don't want it to stop there. I want them um, to basically be able to have music be a part of their life for the rest of their life, regardless of if they end up as a music major. Most of my students likely won't make a career of music, and that's fine. I want music to be a part of their life Um, particularly when it comes to worship. Um, And one of my favorite quotes by um, Kodai, I actually have hanging in my classroom, and for me this is just so sort of central to why I think literacy is important. And um, so Kodai says, it is the right of every citizen to be taught the basic elements of music, to be handed the key with which he can enter the locked world of music, to open the ear and heart of millions to serious music is a great thing. And so I had that quote hanging Mm -hmm. prominently in my classroom because it's a reminder for me as a teacher what I do, but I also point my students to that and tell them, you know, I want want you to be musical for the rest of your life. It's such a gift and it's such a joy and it's a way to connect with other people. How does music, especially music literacy, then nurture or affect other skills, whether it be life skills or academic skills? Mm-hmm. Um, so 
music teaches discipline. Um, it teaches cooperation and collaboration, um, unless you're playing piano or, you know, something like that. And even with piano, you might be playing with others in a duet. But if you're in a choir or if you're in a band or an orchestra, you're working with other people. Um, and it also, I think, teaches listening. And I think this is huge. And I've noticed this more and more. Um, kids today are so used to visual stimulation and having, you know, multiple input. Um, and so to sit and learn to truly listen um, is an important skill, not just for music, but ultimately for interacting with other people and learn, learning to use their ears and not have that visual stimulation um, is really challenging for some <laughs> students, surprisingly so, um, and music allows them to practice that skill. I had the privilege of studying music all the way through elementary school, middle school, high school, and even my first two years of college. And I would certainly agree that it has been very beneficial for me having attended, especially uniquely attending public school uh, through you know elementary through high school and still get getting the opportunity to study sacred music in that setting uh, most of the mm -hmm. music much of the music that we used in middle school and high school uh, in in choir uh, was sacred music and so I learned a lot about sacred music just in you know from eighth grade through my high school years and certainly benefits me today here obviously in my work at KFUO but also uh, as a, a member of a congregation and participating in the life of the congregation and worship as well, helping me uh, understand and appreciate the music of the church. Mm -hmm. Certainly. What about academically? How might uh, music help us in other areas of or in academia? Um, you know, I often say with music, um, it's it's the one subject that it seems like everyone has a place. Um, it's very rare that I have a student who just can't be successful in the music classroom. And so it's one area where it's in some ways a level playing field. Um, I know from talking to my students and just from thinking back to my own years in grade school, you know, often there are students who struggle in, you know, one or more subjects um, and have to work hard at it and, so the music room is just a place where um, everyone can have that um, success, but also there's just a certain amount of joy and just life that happens. And so in some ways, while it is absolutely an academic subject, it's a break from the regular classroom and just an opportunity to enjoy life and enjoy life together and to learn hymns together um, and I have even, I have even in the last couple of years decided to do away with formalized grades in my classroom because students nowadays, they get tested on everything and graded and measured against people and everything. Um, and I think there is something to be said for just living and for just enjoying life and everything doesn't have to be for a grade or for a <laughs> test score. And so as long as my students are making progress, I'm not really too concerned about um, formalized grading. And I know that there are people who would disagree with that. I realize this is probably not commonplace and certainly in a public school, I don't know that I could get away with that. But um, there, there's some place 
for every student to do well in a music room, and I can set it up as such. So if there's a student who I know um, doesn't do particularly well on the xylophone, I can just assign that student to a drum or to the movement section. And so there's so I can play to the strength of the student and just boost their confidence and give them something to feel good about. How can parents encourage music literacy for their children, especially if parents themselves aren't musicians or uh, don't find themselves musically inclined? Right, and I get that question a lot. Um, And I think the best thing for parents to do is to be supportive of music and to talk to their child's music educator or choir director. Um, We are often more than willing to talk to a parent and give suggestions or ideas tailored to that particular child. Um, One of the reasons I have this program for infants and toddlers and preschoolers, and I insist that a parent or a caregiver comes, and sometimes it's grandma, sometimes it's dad, sometimes it's mom, but those classes, they're really as much for the parents as it is for the students because oftentimes parents are more musical than they give themselves credit for. Um, they are self-conscious of their own singing voice or they had a bad experience somewhere along the way where they were, you know, compared to a quote-unquote musical person. Um, and so part of the reason I do those classes is to help teach parents that even if you don't have a music degree, even if you don't think of yourself as musical, you can do music with your child and your attitude, the parent's attitude towards music will be huge in how a child views music. And so I tell parents, even if they don't think they are musical, get involved, take a class, um, ask your child what, what they're doing in music. Um, I've even had parents sign up and take piano lessons at the same time as their child. And so they learn together. That's, Um, really neat when that happens. And I realize not everybody has the time to do that, but Mm -hmm. that demonstrates to the child that um, music is important and it's not just for kids and it becomes sort of a special thing that they share with their parent and they learn together. What's the, uh, the oldest student, what grades or what ages do you work with? Um, Well, I, at the school that I teach, um, what, let me go back, sorry, (laughs) at Redeemer, I have these mom and toddler classes, and then I have a children's choir, which is second to eighth grade. I have an adult handball choir, which has actually quite a few middle school and high school kids in it. Um, But then I also teach at our sister congregation just down the road has a school. We don't have a school, so I teach general music there. Um, But I have, again, high school kids and college kids even who will sing in the choir or ring Mm -hmm. bells or all the way up to, you know, seniors in the congregation. So I'm sort of fortunate in that I I get to work with a variety of ages and literacy and music, it's for everyone. And there's always something to learn, whether you're three months or 72 and have been singing in choir all your life, there's always more to learn. What can 
obviously in in lessons in classroom there are things that the students are learning what can parents be doing outside of the class or outside of lessons that would be helpful are there things that the families can be doing at home obviously practicing but are there other right. things that <laughs> are there other things that that parents uh, and families can be doing that that would also nurture them in this uh, in their music skills and music literacy mm-hmm. um, I always encourage families to find concerts to go to um oftentimes particularly if you're by a university or a um, larger city there are uh, classical concerts or choral concerts and oftentimes um, for example i live in elgin and the elgin symphony has a series that is designed for kids and so it's exposing them to classical music and it's done being mindful that it will be an audience full of kids so the concerts aren't quite as long and they talk to the kids in between. Um, and so, again, just exposing them to, to good music and, and showing them the possibilities, uh, particularly if they are taking an instrument. Um, beginning music is beginning music, and it's necessary and a step, but it's, it's good to show students what is possible and why lessons are so important. Um, and also just, again, music is a language, so having kids exposed to it as much as possible. So I tell families, you know, in, include a hymn in your family devotions. And, um, you know, if, if you're not super comfortable singing, maybe pick one hymn and, and sing it, you know, for a month or more. Um, CPH has that great um, children's hymnal, My First Hymnal, and there are CDs that you can purchase separately. And so... If families aren't comfortable leading a hymn a cappella, you can use that CD to help the child learn and then have the hymnal open and follow along, teaching them, you know, to track the music. And just it's just exposure and all of that little bit, I think, um, can go a long way to be supporting and complementing what the child might be getting in lessons or at school resources uh, that uh, that might be helpful to to family or families to parents and kids um that in terms of music literacy, I, I love your idea of you know going out to concerts and just you know being exposed to uh, to music outside of our, our regular everyday settings as well. Any other resources you might point us to? Um, there is a great um, CD. I give it to all of my friends who have babies. It's my standard gift. <laughs> um, it's a CD called Keeping the Beat. Um, and it is published by GIA. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere. But I have just found this to be a wonderful resource. I use it with my three-month-old. I use it with my older students. And it is a compilation of classical music from a variety of time periods. Um, and the thing that I love about this, this um, it was compiled by Dr. John Feyerabend. Um I did my Kodai training at the Hart School of Music and actually had the privilege of studying directly with Dr. Feyerabend, and in all of his research, he has discovered that children are most, particularly young children, are most successful keeping steady beat if the metronome marking is between 120 and 136. Um, and often he argued, and I have found this to be true, if a child seemingly can't keep a beat, it's not that they can't keep a beat, it's that the tempo is inappropriate for where they are developmentally. And so every piece of music on the CD falls within that little window um, of the right metronome markings. And so it is just, it's a great CD to have. And 
um, you can just listen to it. I also encourage parents, you know, with young children to just bounce the baby on their knee to the beat. When they get a little older, dance around the living room. It's just a really, really great um, CD, and it's all appropriate for um, child development. In that same series, there is a, um, a whole bunch of children's books. They're called Song Tales. And they're still coming out with one new one each year. And these are wonderful books. They're old folk stories, um, song tales, folk songs that have been handed down from generation to generation. And they're just beautifully illustrated books. And each book has the actual printed music in the very back, as well as the history of the piece of music and a link to download um, an MP3 file that you can listen to it. And I have found that children just, can't get enough of these books and so it's combining literacy and music and just beautiful illustrations and um young i i use them with my preschool kindergarten first graders but i still have mm-hmm. kids as old as third and fourth grade if we have a few minutes at the end of a class oh miss what can you tell us a song tale they just love these Books. Wonderful. We're talking with Emily Wook. She's director of Parish Music at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. And uh, we have more to talk about, uh, especially when it comes to in- including children's voices and music in worship. You're listening to Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The Democrat National Committee went to the extreme in an effort to achieve gender balance during the recent convention. They actually excluded two men just because they are male. Vermont State Senator Tim Ash and a party activist, Ken Dean, were elected by the people of their state to represent them at the Democratic National Convention. But the DNC ordered them replaced to achieve gender balance. They were kicked off solely for being male. The two men have filed a formal complaint with the Credentials Committee. They're well-known and respected in Democrat Party circles, which didn't matter to the party leadership. More and more, we see this type of ridiculous stuff. In this case, blatantly discriminating against men to achieve gender balance with women. For more information, visit our website at lifeissues.org. And stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Hi, I'm Mark Hawkinson with an invitation for you to join me over the weekday noon hour for Moments of Assurance, your lunchtime spiritual recipe. You'll enjoy encouraging scriptures, 
a bit of Bible history and trivia, news items, humor, the kids' corner, and more, all mixed in with faith-strengthening sacred music, a blend just right for your midday hour. So join me, won't you? That's Moments of Assurance over the weekday noontime hour here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. Hi, I'm Grace Kane, a junior at Lutheran High School South in St. Louis. Every day, I can grow in my faith with Christian faculty and other young believers. Together, we grow in the challenging academic environment at Lutheran South. Thanks to my school, I'm ready to not just go to college, but excel in college and throughout the rest of my life. Have you checked out Lutheran schools lately? Learn more at lhssstl.org. That's lhssstl.org. Do you enjoy using good old snail mail, writing a letter, a postcard, or using a typewriter to do the same? Why not send Worldwide KFUO your letter today? Our street address is Worldwide KFUO 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri 63122. And just a click away 24 hours a day, you can find our contacts page at kfuo.org. Are you willing to share your talents while learning new skills and enjoying fellowship? The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is looking for volunteers who can help us share the love of Christ by offering their time and talents at the International Center. For more information, contact Maureen at Volunteer Connection 314-996-1629. 314-996-1629. Listen to Worldwide KFUO a click away 24 hours a day at KFUO.org. With our KFUO website and smartphone apps, you can listen to our live stream and our on-demand programs and podcasts anytime, day or night. Listen to Worldwide KFUO when you're available and where you are. Listen on your car radio, Bluetooth devices, smartphones, podcast players, Wi-Fi radios, and so many other listening devices. Listen today, tonight, tomorrow, whenever. And tell your friends about KFUO or click away 24 hours a day at KFUO.org. You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. We're talking about children and music, music literacy, and now children and music in worship. We're talking with Emily Wook, Director of Parish Music at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. Uh, Emily, tell me a little bit about uh, children and music at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst. How are children involved in music in the life of the congregation at Redeemer? Sure. Um, well, we do have those classes, which we talked a little bit about already, um, which members are, of course, encouraged to participate in. Um, but we also do a Sunday school opening, um, which always involves singing of some sort um, with all of the Sunday school children. And we have a children's choir um, that is for children between second and eighth grade, um, and they sing once a month. And so that certainly is a really prominent way to get children very actively involved um, within the worship. And then just, I would say, I'm just very fortunate and blessed to serve at a parish that is very understanding of all the things that go along with having little ones in worship. Um, And so parents are encouraged to just be in worship with their children. And typically, um, you know, the people sitting around them are very understanding and kind and you know don't don't say hurtful things or stare or things like that and so parents feel comfortable to stay in in 
in the worship service. Now, of course, every child, you know, might have a need to go out at some point if they, you know, have a temper tantrum or diaper change or whatever. But for the most part, the kids stay in worship, and that's just really the best way for them to learn is just to be around it and to be a part of the body of Christ there gathered on a Sunday morning. So kids, uh, children certainly have a place in worship, just like all, all others for whom Christ died and uh, all others who are, 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 are baptized and called into this body of Christ. They're, they have a place certainly in gathering together around God's good gifts. And music is certainly a, an important part of that, that worship as we gather around God's good gifts. Why, uh, why is it important specifically for children uh, to be involved in this life of worship in the congregation from your perspective? Um, I think it's how they learn. It's how they learn what church is about. It's how they learn the liturgy. It's how um, they learn the stories of the faith, the hymns of the faith, what Christ died for them, or, you know, that Christ died for them, and just the whole story of salvation. It's always amazing to me if you talk to a child after worship and start asking them questions, how much they are actually tuned into what's going on. Um, even if a child has been coloring the whole service or, you know, fidgeting in the pew, it's really remarkable how much they actually are picking up on, even if it might not appear that they are mm-hmm. listening. They are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so tell me about some of the, the music that uh, you mentioned, having choirs and and uh, bells as well, or chimes. Tell me a little bit more about the, the music in worship at Redeemer. Okay. Um, so the children's choir, um, which I have again at second to eighth graders, and they sing about once a month. They rehearse once a week. Um, but I try and put the focus on teaching them how to more fully participate in worship. So while they do sing an anthem, if there's time, I always teach a hymn verse first, and then if there's time, the intro it, and then if there's time after that, the anthem. Because I feel, and again, I know there are varying opinions, but I feel that while anthems are lovely additions to the service, my primary role as a choral director is to teach hymnody and literacy to these kids. And for me, I would rather them really learn a hymn and sing a verse by themselves, um, because that is something that if they continue to come to church for the rest of their lives, which of course I hope they will, um, that hymn is going to resurface in their life at some point, whereas an anthem, they might not ever sing that piece again. And so while there are benefits to anthems and things to be learned there, I really want them learning um, the hymns. And then I spend a fair amount of time in rehearsals talking about the different parts of the liturgy and teaching the different parts of the liturgy. Um, so again, as these children grow, they can participate more fully. For my really little ones, my second graders who are brand new to um, choir, and some of them are very faithful um, coming to church, and some of them maybe come you know, a couple times a month, or maybe even only when the choir sings, um, I will on Saturday go through and highlight the bulletin for them. And when they come early, I have bookmarks. And so we mark all the hymns ahead of time because I don't want the mechanics of finding hymns or following along in 
the bulletin to hinder them from participating. I also have found that pairing a young singer with an old singer, older singer, is wonderful because it allows that older child a leadership role to mentor a younger child, and it gives the younger child somebody built in right next to them to help them follow along, and the younger children learn from the older children. And it's really just beautiful to watch that happen, and both the older and younger child are benefiting just in different ways. Now you mentioned the value of, of hymns versus anthems or special music, that the hymns are something that will carry with us, that, uh, that in a sense, you know, withstand the test of time. Uh, how do you go about teaching hymns to, to children? What is it in hymns um, that, that's challenging, and, and what uh, perhaps can children do with hymns that we might not realize they're quite capable of? Sure. Um, I, I just think that hymns are, they're rich and they have so many teachable possibilities, whether it's a new vocabulary word or a new concept or a chance to connect a hymn verse to part of the catechism that perhaps came up in Sunday school. Um, there are just all sorts of connections to be made. Um, and I always say I like to give children music that they can grow into, not out of, so I'm not too concerned if they don't understand absolutely everything about the hymn or what they're singing the first time we go through it. Um, it's it's really amazing to see. There are certain hymns, like, for example, Isaiah Mighty Seer is a hymn that I teach every year. And it's wonderful to see my 6th and 7th graders so excited when it's time to sing that hymn. <laughs> They've been singing it since 2nd grade. They're not bored of it. They're not tired of it. They're eager to share it with the younger students and in talking to them asking questions and stuff it's very clear to me that as they grow and they go through confirmation instruction and sunday school they more fully understand those hymns as they get older and i think the same is true even for adults i know for myself i notice new things in hymns all the time hymns i've been singing my whole life um and and so just using hymns sort of as a springboard to to teach about the catechism and to, to teach the place in the liturgical year and and how hymns we're, we're singing our faith in, in singing those hymns um and what? kids like it and, and I've, I've had that too where i'll find a hymn and someone will say oh that's too hard for kids or that's not a hymn mm-hmm. you know for kids and the kids eat it up it's really i think in how the hymn is presented to them. Right. What well, what do you say to the naysayer who says, oh, hymns are too hard for kids, especially because they're just, usually they're just full of words that we don't use every day. Those words are too hard for my child to learn. Uh, yeah. I say, come visit my classroom and I'll show you otherwise. <laughs> um, no. So like, so like an example of that, I had um, my first graders um, at the school, not, not at the church, but at the school, um, learn St. Patrick's Breastplate, I Bind Into Myself Today, which is not the easiest hymn to sing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they learned it, and it is one of their favorite hymns, and they asked for it all year. Are we going to sing that hymn again? Are we going to sing that hymn again? And so we didn't learn the whole hymn the first time, and the first probably week I didn't even allow them to sing it. I just had them follow along in the text, and I would give them something to look for. 
and have them follow along in the hymnal because that's the other thing. I really want those kids from little on handling hymnals. Would it be easier to print it off on a sheet? Absolutely. Does it take time for them to wait for 17 first graders to find the right page? Absolutely. But they need that practice so that they become very comfortable in using the hymnal. And the kids in the room, they love using the hymnals. Mm -hmm. And so I might sing the song and give them something to look for. Or we might sing a verse and then stop and talk about a word that, you know, I'll say, well, you know, this is kind of a big word for first grade. And I don't usually, you know, talk to first grades about first graders about this word, but I think you can handle it. And, you know, oh, be sure you talk to your teacher, you know, tell her what word you learned, you know, and I'll pick some word out of the hymn that, you know, is maybe a word that I know that they wouldn't know what it means. And we talk about it to Mm -hmm. give meaning, to give context. Um, And then it's just, it's, it's just precious how much these kids learn to love hymns. And I can think um, last year, for example, there was, this was second grade, not first grade, but we had put the hymnals away because we had finished with them and we were ready to move on to our next activity. And one of the little boys in the class got up and raced over to the hymnal or to the book shelf and turned a hymnal um, right side up. A child had put it upside down on the um, bookshelf. And the whole class started cheering and another little boy said, oh, thank you. You are our hymn hero. You turned the hymnal You turned the hymnal right side up before the hymns could all fall out. Wouldn't that be so sad if the hymns fell out of the hymnal? And, you know, but it's stuff like that. So, yes, it's childlike. It's playful. Of course the hymns aren't going to fall out of the hymnals, but the fact that they take such care in how they treat the hymnals and that they recognize that those hymnals contain just wonderful gifts to the church, that's what I want to instill in my students. Absolutely. I was just thinking of, you know, my son, who's two, he'll be three soon. Uh, but uh, at, at bedtime, we have uh, we have prayers and devotions each night. And that includes using my first hymnal from mm-hmm. Concordia Publishing House. And one of his favorite hymns from that is The King of Love My Shepherd Is. Mm-hmm. And he knows it. He knows all, I think there are three stanzas in that hymnal uh, okay. and uh, of that hymn. And, and he knows all three of them quite well and, and can sing it or recite it. Uh, well, mm-hmm. he, he, he'll sing it, but usually he prefers, he, he wants me to sing it. <laughs> he doesn't want to sing it, but he will. And, and he does a fine job with it too. He knows all the right. words. It's amazing. He's two yeah. and he knows all yeah. the words. Yes. Wonderful. It's wonderful. Well, and I I also tell people who say, oh, you know, hymns are too hard for kids or kids don't like, you know, again, I want to give them something they can grow into and I want to give them something that's going to sustain them over the long haul. Um, I'm currently working on um, getting my certification to become a music therapist. And in my clinical um, hours, which I'm required to get in order to complete this program, um, the last rotation that I did was with memory care. And when people have Alzheimer's or some form of dementia, they often, you know, don't speak as much or forget things, but 
when those hymns are so ingrained, they're right there. And so you might have someone who doesn't recognize their spouse or their children, but you start singing a hymn that's familiar, and every word is there. And that is powerful to see. And so I think of, when I think of my students, you know, certainly I hope that none of them ever have Alzheimer's or, you know, anything like that, but it's just, it's amazing to think that these hymns are going to hopefully be a part of their life, you know, from the time they're very young to the time they're very old. And so I tell parents too, you know, when you foster this in children and when you, when you give them music, it really is a lifelong gift. Um, and just, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I get goosebumps just thinking about it to see, you know, someone with Alzheimer's or dementia who, who is, confused and scared and those hymns just bring great comfort and these are often hymns that they learned in their childhood so there's there's huge value in teaching hymns to children for a whole plethora of reasons well you've we've certainly talked about how through the music programs at uh, at redeemer uh children are involved in music and the in worship how can parents uh, involve help make sure that their their children are involved or engaged in worship? Ideas from from the director of parish music, what parents can do. Well, I always say, help your child follow along. I love it when I look out over the congregation and I see parents with their toddler or preschooler on their lap following, you know, using their finger to point along in the hymnal. And is the child reading yet? No. But again, it's exposing them, it's teaching them, it's having them listen. Um, and then once children get a little older, you know, certainly they're able to, to learn more and participate more. Um, but I also, you know, say you can give your children certain things to listen for or to look for. Um, kind of give them reasons to pay attention, whether it's noticing the pyramids changing color or like at my church we do a hymn of the month. And part of the reason we do a hymn of the month is with this idea that by singing the same hymn as the closing hymn for the whole month, the very littlest in the congregation by week three or four, they might not have learned the whole song or the whole hymn, but they're able to participate in in certain lines or phrases or you know maybe the first verse um and so just allowing them to participate as fully as possible and i say too you know don't don't squelch efforts so for example i have a little one in my parish right now who is um for the most part nonverbal. but when the congregation is singing she sings along with them or she thinks she's singing along with them, and she's not quiet about it. I mean, she is joyful, and everyone around hears her singing, and she's really just, you know, vocal exploration, but she is, to the best of her ability, participating, and I applaud those parents for not trying to stifle that, but just allowing it to be. Nobody's really bothered by it, and in her own way, she is participating and worshiping with the rest of the congregation. Um yeah, that that's beautiful to hear that uh, that that she is engaged and uh, embracing that the music of the church, the church's song, and and sees herself as a part of this body of Christ as we gather together in song. 
Mm-hmm. What can what kind of learning can happen at home? What can parents? Uh, what can families be doing at home to help their children with with music and worship? Yeah, again, I think just singing hymns at home is just it's huge, um, but also teaching the kids to handle the hymnal, teaching them about the different parts mm-hmm. of worship, you know, so even if it's not, you know, teaching music, te- you know, making sure that they're learning the Lord's Prayer, that they're learning the Creed, that you're talking about what happens in church and why, um, and just sort of planting those seeds. Oh, you know, in a couple of years when you're old enough, you know, you can sing in the children's choir, just planting those seeds um, very early so that it's just, I don't want to say expected, but it's just common. It's, you know, yep, this is what we do. You know, Mm -hmm. you're going to sing in the choir and we're going to participate. And I think, again, a parent's attitude towards music and worship um, has a tremendous effect on a child. So if a child is in worship and doesn't see mom or dad singing, it's going to be much more difficult for me to convince that child to join the children's choir. Mm -hmm or even just participate in worship because it's not being modeled. If mom and dad aren't doing it, why would I sit here and sing? Right. That was my next question, you know, for the family that, that uh, whether it's parents or kids that, that don't see themselves as musical. I mean, music is a, is an important part of worship. We sing hymns together. We, uh, music is just a key part of worship when we gather together. That's what the, the church has done for centuries when we gather together. Uh, what words do you have to that, that parent that's not musical and worship when it, and the, you know, when the, they're concerned about music and worship for them or for their children, uh, to that family that's not musical, what words of encouragement do you have to them? Yeah, I would say sing anyway, even if, again, a lot of times people think that they're not a good singer and it's, it's their own perception. Um, and, and it's really not, they're not all as bad as they think. Um, and again, it's, it's about participating. You know, we're called to make a joyful noise, not a, not a perf- I mean, it's lovely when it's a beautiful noise, but we're called to make a joyful noise. And, and so just participate, don't, don't not participate. And, and for the, for the parents who, who maybe aren't confident, you know, maybe the parents could think about joining the adult choir and, and learning, you know, to increase some of their skills or seek out the strong singers in the congregation and make a, make a point to sit in front of them so that you have support behind you or in front of you or next to you. Um, if that makes you feel more comfortable singing and then also is exposing your children to other adults modeling participation in worship. When we look at the, uh, the church's song, when we look at the, the role of music in worship from, uh, from a, a director of parish music's perspective, why is, why is music so key? Why is it such an important part of the, the life of worship in the congregation? Well, I think, again, you are what you sing, and mm-hmm. the church has been singing for centuries, and to join your voice with hundreds of other people in your parish and thousands of other people who are all gathered on a Sunday morning is just a powerful thing. And worship and singing, it's not a spectator activity. It's something that one should be actively participating and engaging in. And so to sit back in the pew and not participate um, 
is a shame, really, because you're missing out. And um, listening is not the same as as singing. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think you internalize things differently when you are physically singing those words with your fellow Christians in the pew and um, actively participating in the liturgy. It, It just... Yeah, it. I mean, I don't even know how to eloquently put it into words because it's just so wonderful. Um, you know, any more than if it were a holiday and the family was gathered mm-hmm. together and you have one person not singing happy birthday or not participating in the meal, that's just sad, you know. So I want people participating and um, to whatever their ability is. And, and the thing, too, is even if people lack confidence or don't think they're good at it, the more you do it, the more comfortable you're going to be with it and the more you're going to get out of it and the more you're going to learn. And it's a lifelong process. It's not something we're ever finished learning, I don't think. Right. It's uh, the the life of the congregation is is something that, well, hopefully we'll be a part of the, the, the rest of our lives. And the song, the church's song is something that has gone on throughout centuries. It's uh, the church's song is something that, well, that that in a sense transcends time. Um, it's it's not something that's connected solely to uh, just cultural things, you know, things that the the current music, whatever's currently popular. It's something that transcends that, and so learning to sing that song, the church's song, uh, connects us with the church throughout time too. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, Emily, it has been a pleasure talking with you today, learning about music literacy and children's voices and music and worship. It's been uh, a privilege to to have this time with you. Thanks for being my guest today on Faith and Family. Thanks so much for having me. Emily Wook, she's the director of Parish Music at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. And uh, we'll uh, we'll try to share a link to that CD as well if we can. uh, We'll try to do that on our website as well later on today. Thank you so much for uh, for spending this time with us today, listeners, being a part of Faith and Family here on Worldwide KFUO. Up next, Thy Strong Word. Pastor Whedon's out of town for a little while, so we're going to revisit a previous study. We're going to take a look at uh, some of the epistles that, that we've studied in the past as uh, Pastor Whedon's out on the road and doing some traveling. So stick around. Thy Strong Word up next on Listener Supported Worldwide KFUO. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.